You know, one of my favorite movies of the last decade or so was the 2009 Star Trek reboot with, uh, if you remember that, Chris Pine playing a very young Captain Kirk. And there are a lot of reasons to love this movie, <clears throat> excuse me, even if you're not a Star Trek fan. Uh, just because of the story, it's a story of the coming together of the, of the crew of the USS Enterprise, that's the starship, and how that original team came together. And at first, you know, things were not in the way that they, people were not in the right place, they weren't on board, you had, a, things weren't right, Spock was the captain, and Scotty wasn't on board, and then different things happen, and the magic team is achieved, you know, that moment when everybody's in the right place for the crew of this starship, and when it happens and that, that magical arrangement is achieved, then, you know, the starship, is, the, the, the Enterprise is able to just take off, you know, just like at the beginning, whoosh, you know. Uh, and that was really the strength of the series, it's the strength of this movie, is this feeling that you get when, when you actually have a leadership team that just comes together in just the right way, just that magic arrangement, and it allows, you know, that perfect team to just, the enterprise just go forward. Now, this is hard to achieve for any enterprise, you know, not just the USS enterprise, but any enterprise actually, it's kind of hard to get that, that, that arrangement that you need for the leadership. And Jim Collins, it might be a name that some of you know if you're in business, he's a kind of business guru. If you have an MBA, you know that name, Jim Collins. He wrote Good to Great, the, uh, you know, it's about how to take your company from just being a good company to being a great company. And he talks, I think he, he's the one who talks about, very important for your company or your enterprise to get the wrong people off the bus and the right people on the bus. And I would just add, it's not only getting the right people on the bus, it's getting them in the right seats <laughs> on the bus when you get them on there to get that perfect team. And when you do that, you know, just like the USS Enterprise, you could just take off and do amazing things. So we're going to see this principle of leadership actually in the ancient kingdom of Israel today. So if you would uh, be able to stand and join me, I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 1. And <clears throat> after just touching on verse 1, noting verse 1, we're going to be reading verses 32 to 45 of 1 Kings chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading in the ESV version if you want to follow along or it'll be on your screens uh, if you're watching. So again, 1 Kings chapter 1. This is the golden period of the kingdom of God on earth. So verse 1, now David was old and advanced in years. And then to verse 32, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you sir, the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. 
You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were feasting. They were finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and Pelethites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they've gone up from there rejoicing, so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. This is the word of the Lord. Please make yourself comfortable. So as I said, we're reading a passage about a decision, about an event that takes place in the golden age of the kingdom of heaven, of the ancient kingdom of Israel around 1000 BC. And we noted from verse 1 that David at this point is very old. That means that the kingdom has had a chance to mature. He's had 40 years to set things up as they should be. So he has been able to put things in place and begin to form the kingdom in the administration, the governance, the way that it should be. And what do we find when, we, when he does that, what do we see in this mature kingdom during the peak of the golden age of, of the kingdom of God on earth? Well, you know, last month, the New Yorker magazine ran an article on the kingdom of David in search of David's kingdom, I think it was called. It was this article. And the article was, not surprisingly, very minimalistic. Uh, in that it was saying that, you know, this thing, the way the Bible describes it, it couldn't really have been that way. We know archaeologically, and they quote archaeologists, archaeologists to the effect that, you know, it, it really couldn't have happened this way. Now, let me just say, to evaluate that claim that the New Yorker is making, that, you know, it couldn't really have happened the way the Bible said, to evaluate that claim well, you need to trace this issue through time. So you can see how the goalposts have moved. Because I remember, it was just a few decades ago, it was not long ago, when the results of assured scholarship told us that it was impossible for David to exist, that David didn't even exist. 
And you can read, it's actually the same archaeologist uh, who they quoted would say, you know, David, David couldn't exist. We have no evidence at all that David even existed outside of the Bible. And so you could go to classes and learn that David didn't exist and they wrote books about it, you know, and that was, that was what we were told, you know, we can, we can tell you this for sure until the 1990s. I still remember it when they discovered the Tel Dan Stila, which had an inscription at Tel Dan that referred to the house of David by an enemy, by one of the enemies of David, the house of David. Now, that just, just that one phrase spoke volumes because it not only testified to the historical figure, David, but it also testified to the fact that there was a dynasty that came from David, just as the Bible describes, that there was actually a long series of kings. There was this house of David that went on. So all of a sudden there in the 1990s, you could no longer say that David didn't exist. And so since now you can no longer say that David didn't exist, now the line is that, well, you know, he existed, but it couldn't have happened the way that the, the Bible is explaining this kingdom to have progressed. Couldn't have happened that way. Well, pardon me if I greet this announcement from the New Yorker as, with, a, with, a, with a tad bit of skepticism. Forgive me, you know, if I take this as a grain of salt. You decide for yourself. Anyway... The Bible tells us that at this point in the kingdom, what we find is a certain kind of leadership that's going on to make this important decision. Really, this is probably the most important decision that the kingdom of God faces, and that is the question of succession. Who is going to follow David on the throne? And so in making this decision, what do we find this most important act? What we find and this highlights this passage. You know, you could look at it in other places, but this passage particularly highlights how when that important decision is made, how is it confirmed? How is it ratified? Who's involved? What we find is a threefold governance in the kingdom. A threefold leadership. Benaiah, which is acting, who is acting in, you know, representing the king because the king at this point is too old to get out of bed, right? So it's sort of like in place of the king, you have Benaiah acting for what the king says, Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet. Do you notice that how that is repeated throughout the passage? So you look at verse 32, Benaiah, Zadok, Nathan, verse 34, Benaiah, Zadok, Nathan, verse 38. And then and you go to the court of the enemy of the king and the feast that's happening that, that of the enemy of the king, and you find that they're looking at the same thing. They say, look, this is definitely happening because there's Zadok the priest, there's Nathan the uh, prophet, and there's Benaiah for the king. Verse 44, verse 45. So it shows us at this time, whether you're looking at David's court from David's perspective or you're looking from the enemy's perspective, what everybody saw, this is how the mature kingdom was set up is that when you had an important decision, who was there? The prophet, the priest, and the king. This threefold governance. And these are the offices that we find developed in the theocracy at that time. And the reason these three different people and offices were involved all the time is because no one man could really do it all. 
And that's something that comes up all uh, again and again, that what you need to really lead God's people, what you need to govern well, you can't find it in one person. And so because you can't find it in one man, you know, you needed these offices to develop. Early on, they had one guy trying to do it all. And his name was Moses. And he had to do it all from the beginning. But there are all sorts of stories in Exodus with, when Moses is moving where you see he can't really do it all. And so he appoints his brother as priest. And then there are all these stories about how he can't do the things he needs to do. He has to delegate. He, he, there needs to be more delegation. It's just this message over and over again. You can't find it all in one man. And so when they got into the kingdom, into the promised land, these three offices developed as the best for God's people. That this is what God's people really need in their leadership. And they weren't just individuals, prophet, priest, and king. It wasn't just three individuals. It was whole departments. And so you can look at different stories in this time period of the kingdom throughout where you have not just a prophet, but a school of prophets. And from that school of prophets arose the prophetic leadership for the nation. And of course, you didn't just have one priest, you had a whole tribe of priests, again, that, that would allow the kingdom to have a priestly leadership. And even though you have one king, he wasn't just one king, he was supported by a whole, you know, executive branch uh, in the government. And so these, these offices came forth because you needed this plurality in the leadership. And this, by the way, is the reason here at Ironworks Church, we're a Presbyterian church. The reason why Presbyterians... Uh, locate the power and the governance of the church in a session, a group of elders, rather than in one person, is for this same principle that we, we really strongly believe, just as the Bible says, you're not going to find it one man. So if you contrast that to, say, other forms of church government that you could be involved in, you know, like the Episcopal model, it's the, the power is in the bishops and, it, and it's top down, the pope or the bishops, and that's where the power comes from. Where if you take a, a Baptist church, the Baptist model is that the, the power resides in the congregation. And it's supposed to reside on all the people. And so all the people vote on, on the issues. And it tends to, to make one power, you know, power ends up focusing on one person. But that's the idea. Whereas the Presbyterians, we say there needs to be this power in the leadership. But it needs to be a plurality of leadership. Because we can't find it uh, in one man. So that's the way we do it. So if you're with me here, you might, you might be wondering, well, why do we need this threefold leadership? Why did the ancient kingdom of Israel need these three offices to develop? Well, the king was there to administrate the kingdom, to be the place where the buck stopped. There had to be someone where the buck stopped there. And that's what the king was. He oversaw all of, the, all of what was going on in the kingdom. He protected the kingdom and he ruled. He basically did what all, all the things you needed to do to be in charge. But that's not all that was needed. There was also needed the priest. And what did the priest do? Well, the priest brought the kingdom to the individual, if I could put it that way. The, the priest connected people with God. The priest interceded for the people. The priest made sacrifice for the people. And so it was like the priest had one hand on God and one, one hand on God, one hand on the people at the same time. 
He was the mediator. Right? But there was also additional component of leadership for the people of God to really be healthy and to move forward and to be all that God wanted them to be, to do all that God wanted them to do. And that was the prophetic leadership. You needed the prophet to prosecute the covenant. And the prophet was there basically to get the word of God from the, from the divine throne room and bring it to the earthly throne room. And so he applied the word from the scriptures to the people. He got the word for them. And really he gave direction to the kingdom. The prophet was the one who was able to create the vision and say, you know, we need to move from point A to point B. And that's why early on what Moses was called, first leader, was really a prophet. He was called a prophet because he literally had to move people from point A to point B. He had to move them across a desert out of Egypt. He had to get them out of Egypt. He had to get them into the promised land. That was his primary leadership. And it took a, it took a tremendous amount of vision casting and prophetic leadership to, to see that happen. So that was the kingdom, you know. And it was fantastic, friends, when all through, when, when, you know, different problems came in, but when all three things were working the way they should, um, when you had the, the prophet who, ha who really did have the respect of the king and the ear of the king, when you had a priesthood, a priestly caste that wasn't corrupt, then it was like, whoosh, you know, the kingdom just took off. It was like the, the USS Enterprise, at the, you know, the beginning of the episode, whoosh, whoosh, you know, that's what it was like. Because you had the right people on the right bu in, the right bu in the right bus, and you had them sitting in the right place on the bus, just like the Enterprise. Okay, so we're not called to a theocracy today. Um, we're not called to, to have the same form of government uh, in our organizations, in our churches, but... It's very interesting you come to the New Testament in Ephesians 4. It says that the Holy Spirit is still giving leadership, gifts of leadership to the church. The Holy Spirit is still giving these gifts to the church. And though it's not phrased as exactly the same way as prophet, priest, and king, in those terms, you can still see in the leaders that are given, like prophet and the pastors, you can still see these giftedness gifts coming through. And I would posit to you that any organization, you could look at any organization in this way, even, even your own companies that you work for, and you could see where they're strong in this way and where they might be weak in this way. And that to run the company well, you actually need all three of these in your leadership somehow. For, for a company, any company, any enterprise, to run well, you need the three of these in operation. And it's especially true in a church. We don't have three offices, but we have the same kinds of giftedness from the Holy Spirit. And you want those three operating in your church. Why? Because they just, they just see different things. So you have a, a prophetically gifted person is a pastor or a leader and he's just going to see something where the priestly person is going to see something else. They just see different things. They look at the church and they say this is what's needed. So you need that in your church and it's so great when you see that operating, those gifts operating in your church. So if you have a church for example that has strong priestly gifts 
in the leadership, what do you find happening in that church? You find that people are cared for. You find that people are paid attention to. They're prayed for. There's a feeling in the church that people connect to God. There's a feeling like they connect to God. And people feel represented. It's fantastic. You see that strength. Or if you, if you see a church that has very strong kingly gifts in the leadership operating, what, are, what do you find in that church? Well, you find a church that's well run. And you find, you know, in our context, in the kind of North American, uh, you know, church machinery, that basically means stuff like the service starts on time. Like there are enough bulletins, you know, and jobs are well delegated. People feel represented. You know? And if you're in a church that has a very strong prophetic sense in the leadership, what, are, what is that church like? What do you get when you, when you come into a church with very strong prophetic leadership? People have a sense of the holiness of God. And the church is actually going somewhere. <laughs> the church is actually moving People feel like they're getting at God's priorities and, and they're challenged in their sanctification. You have people who are really growing in the Lord, maturing in their faith. And it's fantastic. So this is great, you know, the way that God gives the leadership to the church and what happens. Now you'd say, why? Why would it be that way? Why would this be true that you need this kind of leadership uh, in a church for God's people? And the answer is, if you go really deep, you trace this right back and you find the Trinity of God, that God is triune. And you actually see this in the way in which the members of the Trinity do what they do in their mission in the world. Now, you know, whenever one member of the Trinity does something, actually the other two are always involved. Their operations are inseparable because it's one God. So when you see that one person acting in the Trinity, one divine person, the other two are actually involved as well. But you can also appropriate to one person different actions that are happening. And so what we find is that the Father operates as king in his unbegottenness. We see him really represented in his unbegottenness in the way that he functions in a king to lead us and to lead the whole universe, lead the, lead the earth. And the Son, of course, shows us the priestly. Because the Son really becomes to us as our priest. And that's a function of his, his eternal procession. Because he is of the Father, he was sent as a mission for us to be our priest. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is the prophet. That's why the Bible talks about, you know, the, the, the Old Testament prophets, when they prophesied, it was the Holy Spirit talking, and the Holy Spirit gives us the scripture, these things. So it's very deep, this goes. Which brings us, friends, to your decision today. Today we're having this congregational meeting, as, as Darren announced, and you are going to be voting on the election of an associate pastor. So that's a serious decision that you have to make. And I, as, as Rob pointed out, based on last week's sermon, you're voting to elect an ass associate pastor, right? The ass associate pastor. So you want to be careful. You have a very 
very careful decision to make. Uh, and the, you're, when you're doing this, you're putting this person over you. So you want to be asking this question, is this what we need? And the way to ask it is, I would recommend through this analysis of giftedness in your church. Because a church that misses one of these, you don't want to, there are going to be problems. There are going to be limitations. You don't want to elect someone because you like them or because, you know, it's just kind of the momentum of the thing. You want to look at the situation and you say, is this, is this bringing a balance in the leadership of my church? Because it's serious, actually, if a church kind of attracts leadership just like itself and not in the other areas of giftedness. So, for example, if you have a prophetic heavy church, like a church that's just really prophetic and that it doesn't have the other two kind of leadership gifts that are operating, then, you, you know, you have a church that's a very strong vision but the care of the people in the church is neglected. Or if you have a church that's, you know, very kingly in its leadership and, and it lacks the other two, then what do you have? You have a church that's very well run. Everything's accounted for. You know, folks know what's going on. But it's sort of like, you know, a cruise ship that never leaves the dock. Right? It's like the machinery in the church is going. It's great. But, you know, where's it going? Or if you have a, a priestly church, a church that's very heavy in the priestliness and you do not have the other gifts operating, then, you know, everybody's paid attention to, people are addressed, but then a church becomes quite insular. The church is actually very inwardly focused and ironically, it becomes much more subject to scandal. So you want to be careful. You want to be saying, what is my church? What are the giftedness in my church now? And what, are the, what would be good to add to that to do what the Lord wants to do? That's how I rec recommend you make this decision. Now, Darren, your pastor, he has, you know, from the beginning, he ha he's had to operate in all three of these giftedness. And he had to. You know, anytime you have a solo pastor, he's got to learn all, at least, even if he's not good at this, he's got to do some of it well. He's got to do all three. has to, especially a church planter. A church planner has to carry all three of these, sort of like Moses did. And even though he's done a great job here, we know he's done a great job. We still have, all of us have these limitations. All of us have fortes. All of us have the leanings, you know, that over time we default to. Because, once again, there's a principle, you don't find it in one man. You can't find all of what's needed for the people of God in one person. So, you got to ask yourself, think about it. This is how you should make a decision. This is how I recommend that you make the decision. You say, well, look at this guy and look at the church. Do I feel like, like Ironworks Church needs more of a kind of building and maintaining? Do I think that people, you know, we need people better cared for in this. Then you might look at the person and say, well, he doesn't quite have those gifts. Maybe this is not a good choice. You know? And he might be a fine fellow, this associate pastoral candidate. He might be a fine guy. You might like him. But, you know, it, you might say, yeah, it's not really the right gifting for us. Or, if you need to, to go somewhere, if you feel like our church needs to, to move, 
into, in, and, and actually kind of move from point A to point B. And you look at the candidate and you say, well, he doesn't really have the prophetic gifting as much on that side of things. That might be a reason to say, no, nah, maybe not. Or, you know, currently if your church is in chaos, you're like, we just need kingly gifts, you know, something like that. What does Ironworks need? Then you need to take a look at the candidate. And, you know, I apologize for those of you uh, kind of looking, maybe watching this on, uh, on the live stream and saying, what, what is this church is talking about itself? Sorry, we have to talk about ourselves today just because we have the importance of, of this vote. But uh, <clears throat> you've been being introduced to me for a while. You know, we've done this actually very cautiously. Although for those of you who have been around, you might know, I've actually been preaching at this church from the very beginning. Actually, from the very start, periodically, I showed up here and preached. So, uh, but you might not realize that. Of course, over the last year or so, you've gotten to know me from the pulpit. You could get to know. I think you've been able to kind of discern like where, what, what he's about, right? For those of you who've taken advantage of you, some of you through counseling with me or discipling, you've gotten to know me. Um, just last month, we did our, our live stream late night Iron uh, Works uh, Phoenix column that we were doing. That was a different side of me, a kind of goofiness. And, you know, we were doing that to, that live stream, we were, really do, we were, we were doing that to cheer you up. That was, that was the whole point of that, uh, to cheer you up and say, hey, maybe we could connect with the community. But that was sort of a, you know, more goofy side. So through all these different venues, you've been able, I think, to discern where I'm at. And you could probably tell which of these three is my leaning, right? You know? Why don't you just shout it out? Where, do, where, where would Sam be? What was the leading to Sam of these three? What's that? Can you, can you say it louder? We're sort of spread out. Prophet. Prophet, yeah. I'm more on the prophetic side. That is, I'm, I'm quite comfortable telling you what God thinks. <laughs> hopefully from the scriptures. Hopefully looking at the scriptures of these saying, hey, let's look at what, this, what scriptures say about God here. And once in a while, once in a while, sometimes... I'm even right about it. It's great when that happens. So you look at that, my gifting, you want to be, and you want to, you know, look at it shrewdly. You know, I, and, and because I have that leaning, you know, I, I have these other things too, but you know what the, what the strong point is, what the, what the pension is. I like to spend time with people. You know, I really do. I enjoy hanging out with people, but it's not like the strong point of me. I, I tend to like to hang out with people when there's a point to the hanging out. I'm not one of these uh, pastors who is just at the cookout and is just hanging out. It's just, you know, I really admire people like that. And make you, they, they just make you feel great to be around, you know. That's not my strongest point. So you got to evaluate that. And, uh, you know, I just want you to know that as you vote, and this is the way you should vote, this is really important, so you should take this on yourself to think about this and vote what you think. It's okay if, if the answer were to come back and say, well, you know, maybe not. Like, no. Like, this isn't the kind of gifting that we need right now. That would be okay. Honestly, it would really be okay. Because this is still continuing to be our church. And, you know, there are other ways to serve. We can continue to do kind of what we're doing. So, 
we really want what God wants, and we really want what's best for Ironworks Church and what's going to help Ironworks Church move forward. So, one more thing before we close here, come to our table, and that is this principle that keeps coming up that you cannot find these things in one man. That you're never going to find all of this giftedness that we really need to lead us. You're not going to find it in one person. And yet, it's interesting that in the Bible, the first time that the word priest appears, the first time that you see the word priest, it just pops up and says, oh, this person was a priest. It's used to describe a king. And so you have a, someone who is a king and a priest, and his name was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes along. He's a priest and he's a king. And he goes out and he talks with a guy who's a prophet and actually the first person in the Bible who's called a prophet. It's the first time the word the prophet comes up. And so you have this priest king who comes and talks with the prophet and actually prophesies over him. So it's very clear what's going on is that you have kind of the greater prophet prophesying over the prophet. So what do we see? We see in Melchizedek a suggestion that there might be, that there may be one man who would be prophet, priest, and king. And we find that Melchizedek points us toward the fact that there is one man who came and was all three of these things. And his name was Jesus Christ. And he, friends, is our great, great priest. Because he not only made sacrifice for us, he became a sacrifice for us. And he continually intercedes for us. He mediates to bring us to God. It's fantastic. No priest better that you could possibly want better than Jesus. But not only that, he's also our awe-inspiring prophet. He gets us the word from heaven that anchors our lives. He tells us what we need to know. He tells us where to focus. And, you know, you basically look at him and you see the will of God. But not only that, he is our wondrous king. He is in control all the time. He helps us to understand and, and rest in the fact that somebody is always running a store and he is constantly subduing our enemies all over the place. You could not want a better king. So at last, friends, what we have in Christ is this man for all seasons. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And Christ, in revealing God to us, shows us we have what we need. So that's the way you, that's why you can rest. You can cast your vote and, and, and put, the, put, the hand, put the rest in the hands of God. Because whatever it is that's going to happen, whatever you're going to end up with in your church, you have his leadership to get you through. Prophet, priest, and king. Let's turn to the table now and celebrate that.